This is the SF Productions Podcast Network. How I Got My Wife to Read Comics Episode 587 Can a comic book collector of over 30 years get his wife to read them? Will she let him keep them? Learn more in this podcast. Let's go to the comic book lounge with Mindy and Mark. I am legally obligated to note that references to arson are a joke. Darkseid's new army, Bruce takes command of the LSH, Naomi makes a long-awaited return, Agent Carter is defrosted, and Longbox Roulette takes us back to Burns Smallville. This is how I got my wife to read comics for Sunday, March 13th, 2022. I'm Mark. And I'm Mindy. Just a reminder, you can go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts and blogs, or subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com, like us at facebook.com slash sfppn, follow us on Twitter at sfppn, check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork, or call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. One Star Squadron number four of six by Russell Lieber and Stewart. It's Halloween, just after Red Tornado was told he has to fire half of the Heroes for You staff. Well, the important thing is that you still have a job. Is it, though? Daughter Treya shows off her spider costume, but is reminded she has a dentist appointment the next day. Ouch. We get a flashback to Red Tornado's last meeting at Heroes for You HQ. They hand him $50,000 in cash, which he is to use to pay off the staff and get them off the books. Red Tornado wonders what will happen to Gangbuster, who is living at a strip mall location. Cut to Power Girl on her way to work, listening to Max Lord's audiobook and feeling bad about screwing over Red. She's surprised to see him at work, calling everyone in for a meeting. There's a whole coffee is for closers riff among the staffers. Red Tornado tells him the bad news, and Power Girl makes a call from the restroom. The board of directors inform her she's the first on the chopping block. Life is a series of transitions. There's a sign in the restroom, all employees must stop crying before returning to work. One at a time, staffers go into Red Tornado's office begging to not be fired. He can't take it and announces he's refusing to fire anyone and is going back to HQ to tell them so. Minuteman stops in. Red Tornado shows him how he generated a positive review and wants to hand him better work. Minuteman refuses it, deciding that he's going to just do office work. I think it's time to let that dream die. Over at Heroes for You HQ, Red Tornado waits to meet with the directors while his secretary talks on the phone about the incredibly expensive NFT hung behind her desk. Meanwhile, Gangbusters is hanging out in an unfurnished home when trick-or-treaters come by. He goes unhinged and the kids run. Neighbors see this and are unsuccessful in taking him down. Back to Power Girl, wandering the streets and still listening to the audiobook. Whether in business or in life, there is only one rule. Be the one who makes the rules. Red confronts the directors who tell him it doesn't matter. They found a buyer for the company, and it's the buyer's problem now. I mean, it was either that or burn it down for the insurance money, right? I am legally obligated to point out that was a joke. 
The buyer, Metropolis Seashells and Nautical Supplies, the same company Minuteman just did a job for. Hmm. Red Tornado drives back to the strip mall only to find it engulfed in flames. Justice League Incarnate Number 5 of 5 by Williamson, Culver, Bresson, Marino, and Hi-Fi. The final issue of this mess of a title, which of course is the introduction of yet another event. It's JLI versus JLI, as some of the members have been turned into dark side-ish zombies. Flash and Dr. Multiverse use their powers to sync up the turned members with their own worlds, saving them. Meanwhile, the gentry and dark side fight, and the great darkness is opened enough that they both enter it. Well, it's dark inside, and dark side falls into an abyss. The JLI debate what to do with the crack in the multiverse. Grail announces that Darkseid is gone, and now Orion is in charge. President Superman, Avery Flash, Captain Carrot, and Dr. Multiverse go into the abyss to save Barry Flash. They find themselves on Earth-1, where Barry has been given an idyllic existence he refuses to leave. Who then shows up? Pariah from Crisis on Infinite Earths. He offers them the same level of happiness, and Dr. Multiverse whisks them away, which is what Pariah wanted. The rest of the JLI decide they can wait no longer, and Thunderer blows up Earth-7 and the Abyss. They escape in a spaceship, only to find the other members floating in the bleed. President Superman tells them they saw an army unlike anyone has ever seen. They need to go to Earth-0 and get our Justice League's help. In the great darkness, Pariah tells a hidden figure that all is in readiness. The last page is Darkseid surrounded by Doomsday, Eclipso, Empty Hand, Necron, Neuron, Upside Down Man, ladies and gentlemen, the dark. This is the army that will apparently take out DC's premier super team in Death of the Justice League, a.k.a. Justice League number 75. Meh. Do we have to read that, Mark? Well, it'll be the last issue of that series, which I'm getting, so we'll, so we'll get that. But that's going to end uh, Justice League okay. for me. Justice League versus the Legion of Superheroes, number two of six, by Bendis, Gotlewski, and Cody. We begin just before the founding of the LSH on a planet where Kala Lore, a blind teacher, lives. He saves his students from a fire, which brings him to the attention of the Guardians of Forever. They're forming a new organization, and when he initially refuses, saying that the Green Lantern Corps is too military, they agree. He becomes the Gold Lantern. Now, Gold Lantern is reporting from 21st Century Earth, going over what happened in the first issue. Namely, that the OG Justice League and the LSH members who came to meet with them are all gone. He confers with a holographic calyx in front of a ruined Hall of Justice and then sees an anomaly, the Great Darkness. In the 31st century, Ollie Queen awakes to see Diana, except it's actually Chameleon Boy, making sure that, that Ollie saw a friendly face first. Naomi wakes up in what appears to be her bedroom, except it's an illusion to let her acclimate. Dawnstar greets Queen Naomi there. The Justice League and Legion of Superheroes meet in Heaven, a.k.a. a conference hall. Batman thanks them for their hospitality, but says they really need to get back to their own time and make sure it's still there. When Brainiac 5 says they need to go over some things first, Bruce insists they be sent back. Brainy also suggests taking his cowl off since they all know who he is. Bruce notes that not all the leaguers know who he is. Unfortunately, the Great Darkness then appears. Bats takes command. Well, 
the LSHR still teens, and sends a mixed group to say hello to it. Black Adam throws caution to the wind and flies into it, and Gold Lantern sees lightning coming out of his end of the darkness. He's also communicating with Brainiac and notes that there's a light symbol in the darkness. At this point, Brainy is stunned, and when Bruce asks what all this means, the reply, The end of all things. This is a slow burn title, and we're already a third of the way through it. Naomi, Season 2, Number 1 of 6 by Bendis, Walker, and Campbell. Almost three years after the last issue, July 2019, Brian Michael Bendis' new hero returns as a solo title. She's been in the Justice League since then. The problem? There's a Naomi TV show on the CW which does not line up with this continuity. That and the huge delay of this season makes it very hard to keep up. Teens in her hometown note that it's only been three weeks since the Justice League run began, and they all think she fought Black Adam to the death. Naomi notes to her therapist that if it had actually happened, she would already be dead. The therapist wants to know about how she's handling the new powers, but Naomi just wants to talk about her how her family has been splintered by all this. Her dad, who we previously learned fought intergalactic fights against D, wants to train her and for her to hold off on the superhero thing until she's ready. He's just being protective. This, it's just, this just isn't what I had pictured for you. What did you picture for me? Doesn't matter anymore. Naomi talks with Dee, saying she may be done with therapy, noting that she has to keep so much hidden. She's also ready to go back to her world and universe to take out Zumbado. Talking to her BFF, Naomi has a vision of flying over a ruined earth. They go to a family dinner. Dee was invited but did not come. Naomi checks on him only to find a lot of damage and her father in the middle of it. Go home right now. Why? What did you do? We may need to hold off on watching the TV show until this plays through. It seems to be going the Riverdale route anyway. Captain Carter number 1 from Marvel by McKelvey, Cresta, and Arseniega. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know we generally shy away from Marvel. You know, in the 70s, when you're a kid with limited allowance, you had to make a choice between the big two. At the time, Marvel was all about realism, and DC was all about aliens and ray guns, so I picked the latter. I've tried to get back into Marvel from time to time, but it always seems like a good title gets roped into the latest event, forcing you to read 37 books to keep up. This book seems to be in a separate continuity, so let's hope it stays that way. Captain Carter, a.k.a. Agent Peggy Carter, was introduced in the recent What If animated series on Disney+. In her continuity, she ends up getting the Super Soldier Serum intended for Steve Rogers and becomes a World War II-era superheroine. This may or may not be the same continuity. Here, she sacrificed herself getting frozen in ice just like Rogers did, discovered and thought out in 2022. The U.S., Britain, and Russia on whose disputed territory she was found, all contend she is theirs. Of course, Peggy tells them to hash it out, but she wants to go home to London. There, with a pension and bank account increased via compound interest of 80 years, she tries to have a normal life, getting used to smartphones and better food. Neighbor Harley makes modern music, which wakes her up at night. Peggy meets with the PM, who is ready with a charm offensive and a new suit design intended as a step to get Great Britain back on the world stage. 
Peggy really wants to protect the world, but in a clandestine manner. She is introduced to Lizzie Braddock, the granddaughter of a swine she knew in college, who will be her liaison. In normal continuity, she is Psylocke in the X-Men. Peggy asks to go to her family's cemetery plot and notes that they, now all dead, assumed she died in World War II. On a bus ride home, she's attacked by a car crash and a bazooka, the latter of which she stops with the shield she just got back. She grabs one of the attackers, who takes a cyanide pill while saying, Hail Hydra! Onlookers have their phones out, and she immediately becomes a celebrity, with her neighbor peppering her with questions. Peggy assumes it will take a day or two for the word to get out, but finds a throng of reporters at her front door. This was really good. I just hope they don't drop it into the next event. With the comic book industry continuing to shrink, along with my weekly polls, it's time to reintroduce Longbox Roulette. I've got about 23,000 comics all boxed up, and I run a random generator to find something interesting to discuss. The comic software I use, Collector's CLZ, not a plug, they don't pay us, has a great feature. You can shake your phone and it gives you a random selection. This week, it's 1988's The World of Smallville, a four-issue miniseries from John Byrne, who had just recently created the Man of Steel reboot, also by Schaffenberger and Alcula. This was part of a set of three interlocking minis, the others being World of Krypton and World of Metropolis, with the goal of filling in backstory in the rebooted continuity. In issue number one, Superman returns to Smallville to see his parents still alive at that point in continuity. They go to the local diner where an old high school friend of Clark works. She notes that he didn't wear glasses back in high school. I guess I ruined my eyes squinting at a word processor for all those years, he says. Clark then notes how nice it is to come back to town, knowing that there have never been any dark secrets. Cue Martha. I used to be married to Daniel Fordman, the richest man in town. Flashback. Jonathan returning from the war to Smallville with his father Sam meeting him at the bus station. He had learned via the mail that his sweetheart Martha had gotten married after Jonathan was thought lost in combat. It just wasn't meant to be. Martha sees their truck driving by and is having second thoughts. Jonathan Kent's a realistic man, even with those science fiction stories he used to read all the time. Aunt Sarah lives with Sam, and she puts on a feast for the returning hero. She also sees that he's still in love with Martha. There is references to Jonathan being a POW and how Dan Fordman's dad saved Martha's family business before he died and Dan proposed. Sarah tells him if he had only told Martha how he felt before he left. Sarah decides to meddle, getting Jonathan to go pick up some supplies and run into Martha. She tells him that Dan has lung cancer, but it's currently in remission. Martha breaks down, and he drives her to the Fordman home, with Dan coming down the stairs using a cane. Dan walks out Jonathan, asking him to come by the department store tomorrow. He does so, walking into Jackie, a black man who was also in the war, now an elevator operator. I never saw Smallville as a town that needed elevators, apart from maybe the grain variety. He's sent to Dan's office where he's smoking cigars. Uh, The fancy doctors in Kansas City tell me every cigar probably knocks a week off my life. Of course, that kind of talk could get me smoking 20 a day. Dan has a proposition for Jonathan. I want you to take Martha away from me. 
In issue two, Superman has to think about all of this on the moon. Back to the flashback, Jonathan returns to the Kent home and Sarah gets him to spill the beans. John is hesitant, but Sarah tells him this is his big opportunity to get the girl of his dreams. John just can't do that and goes back to tell Dan that. He hears a fight going on between Dan and his sister Eliza. She thinks Martha knew he was sick before accepting his proposal and considers her a vulture. Dan replies that Eliza never did anything for the company. She dares Dan to tell Martha that she will get nothing in the will to see what she will do. Jonathan runs out of the office. He then runs into old friend Julie, who I assume is a reference to Julius Schwartz, longtime DC editor. They go into the drugstore and chat, perusing the magazine stand for issues of Amazing Wonder Stories, which Shorts sold stories too. They also run into Betty at the counter, and she throws herself at John, who doesn't notice. He returns to the Fordham home, but before he can talk to Dan, he sees Martha again, and they ask him to stay for dinner. Eliza breaks in and says people in town knew that Martha knew Dan was sick prior to their marriage. Dan calls her a snob. They fight. Then Dan coughs, collapses, and dies, but not before getting Martha to promise to build a new life for yourself. Superman returns to town, stopping by the cemetery and wondering how things might have been different if Dan had lived. Would Clark Fordman ever become Superman? Over a piece of pie, Martha tells him more of the story. At the reading of Dan Fordman's will, it is announced that Eliza gets a trust fund, Martha gets a piece of farmland because she once said she liked it, and the rest of the estate goes to the store. Martha's very happy that Dan remembered, but Eliza is convinced there must be oil or gold on the property. Martha says goodbye to the Fordmans, as well as their chauffeur, James, who just quit. She then sees Jonathan on the street. They begin dating and are married a year later, moving on to the property that was willed to her. They try to have kids, but after three miscarriages, the doctor says it's not safe. Maybe consider adopting? Which, of course, sets up the fateful day, the spaceship, the baby Kal-El. A huge snowstorm hits that night, which lasts five months, giving them cover to say that little Clark is their baby. Somehow, the local doctor accepts this and declares the baby fit. Then, Lana, still living in Smallville, drops by, announcing to the Kents that she knows the secret and is known for years. Although later, it seems pretty obvious that they all knew that, so I don't understand how that was a big revelation. Yeah. There's also references to what the Manhunters did to her, which brings us to... Issue number three. We jump cut to Clark and Lana, current day, at the bank, when masked thugs try to rob the place. One of the robbers recognizes Clark, who at this time is a nationally known columnist. Clark's back is to him, so he can't use his x-ray vision to figure out who it is, but uses heat vision and super breath to surreptitiously disarm them. The cops take them in. Clark walks Lana home, and they discuss the recent events, re the Manhunters, which refers to the 1988 Millennium Crossover, and you can refer to our episode 516 for more information on that. The events that led her to be brainwashed go back to a week after she was born. Flashback! Her parents, taking newborn Lana home, note that this was also the day the Kents found Clark in the spaceship. If they had been home, the Langs might have stopped by. Instead, they were snatched up by the Manhunters and subjected to brainwashing. Her parents died during the operation, but she survived. 
The Manhunters learned of Jor-El's plan to send Kal-El to Earth and set up their own plan where the local doctor was replaced by a Manhunter in disguise who put control chips in all the new babies for 30 years. They would be used as sleeper agents to track Clark, which is also why the doc didn't notice that Clark was different. Lana was returned to Earth as a baby with a convenient accident explaining the parents' deaths. A relative of Lana's moved back to care for her, and as she grew up, she and Clark became good friends. Now, she's not sure if this happened naturally, or was it all part of Manhunter's programming? Periodically, she was summoned to give a report to the Manhunters, then the event was erased from her brain. Friendship turned into love, and by the time of their high school graduation, the town assumed they would get married. Instead, Clark tells her the secret and says he has to go into the world to find his place in it and maybe make a difference. As he flies her around, there's a great reference to a radar station picking them up and a professor noting that there was a flying man a long time ago in another time, a golden age. Clark leaves Lana and flies off to his future life. Back at the Kent home, Martha insists that Lana's feelings for Clark were and are real despite what the Manhunters did. More flashback, where Lana goes to Metropolis to find Clark and sees the newspaper, Mysterious Superman Saves Space Plane. Issue number four. Lana sees that Metropolis is abuzz over this mysterious hero. She knows the secret, but isn't quite sure why she came to the big city. The Manhunters made her do it, of course. She sees that Alois Lane wrote the big story and goes to the Daily Planet to talk to her. She wasn't the only one with this thought. Walking away from the line of people, she sees Clark coming out of the elevator. He's there for a job appointment with Perry White, but is turned away. Perhaps in a few days? Lana, unseen, follows him to the roof where he changes and flies off. The Manhunter's control kicks in and she reports that Clark is now Superman. Back to the current day, Clark and the Kents all tell her it wasn't her fault, saying she was a victim. I would no more hold you responsible than I'd hold the bullet responsible for a murder. Back to Metropolis, where Lana became a full-time Superman monitor, watching her own life fall to feces, eventually becoming a vagrant. She dreamed of returning to Smallville, but only after her control vices burned out could she do so. She collapsed in front of the Kent home, and they nursed her back to health, ironically calling another doctor, not the Manhunter, to check her out. She finally was on the mend, when she told them not to call Clark. He's got enough troubles as Superman. She'll see him when he returns one day. They take her back to the Lang home, now boarded up. Unfortunately, the control device kicks back in and she goes back under their control, except that the Manhunters decide they don't need her anymore. Now she resumes her life in Smallville, having a misplaced anger at Clark for turning her life upside down when he left, again, Manhunters, When Clark returns, she says terrible things to him and now asks him to forgive her, which obviously he does. Finally, he walks her home, saying Smallville is right for her. He also mentions Lois and says he's happy Lana isn't playing any silly games, which is a reference to the constant Lois versus Lana stories of the Silver Age. He thanks her for being his friend and flies off. To be continued in World of Metropolis. The first half of the story is quite interesting, but the second half is just a retelling of the Millennium event. The artwork really reminded me of Silver Age Superman, the Kurt Swan era. Now, in one of the issues, there's a two-page ad for Mile High Comics, complete with a list of books for sale. 
That's I think that's the thing I like most about these older comics is the ads because there were some of the traditional mm-hmm. comic book ads as well. Right. Mail in for this. <laughs> Announcer bot, how can the folks find us online? Go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs. Subscribe by your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Like us at facebook.com slash sfppn. Follow us on Twitter at sfppn. Check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork. Call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Back to you, Mark. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.